What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne, Part 3, Chapter 6. However, the chief business of the colonists was to make that complete exploration of the island which had been decided upon, and which would have two objects, to discover the mysterious being whose existence was now indisputable, and at the same time to find out what had become of the pirates, what retreat they had chosen, what sort of life they were leading, and what was to be feared from them. Cyrus Harding wished to set out without delay. But as the expedition would be of some days' duration, it appeared best to load the cart with different materials and tools, in order to facilitate the organization of the encampments. One of the onagers, however, having hurt its leg, could not be harnessed at present, and a few days' rest was necessary. The departure was, therefore, put off for a week, until the 20th of November. The month of November in this latitude corresponds to the month of May in the northern zones. It was, therefore, the fine season. The sun was entering the Tropic of Capricorn, and gave the longest days in the year. The time was, therefore, very favorable for the projected expedition, which, if it did not accomplish its principal object, would at any rate be fruitful in discoveries, especially of natural productions, since Harding proposed to explore those dense forests of the far west, which stretched to the extremity of the Serpentine Peninsula. During the nine days which preceded their departure, it was agreed that the work on Prospect Heights should be finished off. Moreover, it was necessary for Ayrton to return to the corral, where the domesticated animals required his care. It was decided that he should spend two days there, and return to Granite House after having liberally supplied the stables. As he was about to start, Harding asked him if he would not like one of them to accompany him, observing that the island was less safe than formerly. Ayrton replied that this was unnecessary, as he was enough for the work, and that besides he apprehended no danger. If anything occurred at the corral or in the neighborhood, he could instantly warn the colonists by sending a telegram to Granite House. Ayrton departed at dawn on the ninth taking the cart drawn by one onager, and two hours after the electric wire announced that he had found all in order at the corral. During these two days Harding busied himself in executing a project which would completely guard Granite House against any surprise. It was necessary to completely conceal the opening of the old outlet, 
which was already walled up and partly hidden under grass and plants, at the southern angle of Lake Grant. Nothing was easier, since if the level of the lake was raised two or three feet, the opening would be quite beneath it. Now, to raise this level they had only to establish a dam at the two openings made by the lake, and by which were fed Creek Glycerin and Falls River. The colonists worked with a will, and the two dams which besides did not exceed eight feet in width by three in height, were rapidly erected by means of well-cemented blocks of stone. This work finished, it would have been impossible to guess that at that part of the lake there existed a subterranean passage through which the overflow of the lake formerly escaped. Of course, the little stream which fed the reservoir of Granite House and worked the lift had been carefully preserved, and the water could not fail. The lift once raised, this sure and comfortable retreat would be safe from any surprise. This work had been so quickly done that Pencroft, Guinead Spellett, and Herbert found time to make an expedition to Port Balloon. The sailor was very anxious to know if the little creek in which the Bonaventure was moored had been visited by the convicts. Those gentlemen, he observed, landed on the south coast, and if they followed the shore it is to be feared that they may have discovered the little harbor, and in that case I wouldn't give half a dollar for our Bonaventure. Pencroft's apprehensions were not without foundation, and a visit to Port Balloon appeared to be very desirable. The sailor and his companions set off on the 10th of November, after dinner, well armed. Pencroft, ostentatiously slipping two bullets into each barrel of his rifle, shook his head in a way which betokened nothing good to any one who approached too near him, whether man or beast, as he said. Gideon Skillet and Herbert also took their guns, and about three o'clock all three left Granite House. Neb accompanied them to the turn of the Mercy, and after they had crossed, he raised the bridge. It was agreed that a gunshot should announce the colonists' return, and that at the signal Neb should return and re-establish the communication between the two banks of the river. The little band advanced directly along the road which led to the southern coast of the island. This was only a distance of three miles and a half, but Gideon Spilett and his companions took two hours to traverse it. They examined all the border of the road, the thick forest, as well as Tabor Marsh. They found no trace of the fugitives, who, no doubt, not having yet discovered the number of the colonists, or the means of defense which they had at their disposal, had gained the less accessible parts of the island. Arrived at Port Balloon, Pencroft saw with extreme satisfaction that the Bonaventure was tranquilly floating in the narrow creek. However, Port Balloon was so well hidden among high rocks that it could scarcely be discovered either from the land or the sea. "'Come,' said Pencroft, "'the blackguards have not been there yet. Long grass suits reptiles best, and evidently we shall find them in the far west.' "'And it's very lucky,' "'For if they had found the Bonaventure,' added Herbert, "'they would have gone off in her, "'and we should have been prevented from returning to Tabor Island.' "'Indeed,' remarked the reporter, "'it will be important to take a document there "'which will make known the situation of Lincoln Island, "'and Ayrton's new residence, "'in case the Scotch yacht returns to fetch him.' 
"'Well, the Bonaventure is always there, Mr. Spillett,' answered the sailor. "'She and her crew are ready to start at a moment's notice.' "'I think, Pencroft, that that is a thing to be done after our exploration of the island is finished. It is possible, after all, that the stranger, if we manage to find him, may know as much about Tabor Island as about Lincoln Island. Do not forget that he is certainly the author of the document, and he may, perhaps, know how far we may count on the return of the yacht. "'But!' exclaimed Pencroft. "'Who in the world can he be?' The fellow knows us, and we know nothing about him. If he is a simple castaway, why should he conceal himself? We are honest men, I suppose, and the society of honest men isn't unpleasant to anyone. Did he come here voluntarily? Can he leave the island if he likes? Is he here still? Will he remain any longer? Chatting thus, Pencroft, Gideon Spilett, and Herbert got on board and looked about the deck of the Bonaventure. All at once, the sailor, having examined the bits to which the cable of the anchor were secured, "'Hallo!' he cried. "'This is queer!' "'What is the matter, Pencroft?' asked the reporter. "'The matter is that it was not I who made this knot.' And Pencroft showed a rope which fastened the cable to the bit itself. "'What? It was not you?' asked Gideon Spilett. "'No, I can swear to it. This is a reef-knot, and I always make a running bowline.' "'You must be mistaken, Pencroft.' "'I am not mistaken,' declared the sailor. "'My hand does it so naturally, and one's hand is never mistaken.' "'How can the convicts have been on board?' asked Herbert. "'I know nothing about that,' answered Pencroft. "'But what is certain is that someone has weighed the Bonaventure's anchor and dropped it again. And look here, here is another proof. The cable of the anchor has been run out and its service is no longer at the hawse-hole. I repeat that someone has been using our vessel. But if the convicts had used her, they would have pillaged her, or rather gone off with her. Gone off? Where to? To Tabor Island? replied Pencroft. Do you think they would risk themselves in a boat of such small tonnage? We must besides be sure that they know of the islet, rejoined the reporter. However that may be, said the sailor, as sure as my name is Bonaventure Pencroft of the Vineyard, our Bonaventure has sailed without us. The sailor was so positive that neither Gideon Spilett nor Herbert could dispute his statement. It was evident that the vessel had been moved, more or less, since Pencroft had brought her to Port Balloon. As to the sailor, he had not the slightest doubt that the anchor had been raised and then dropped again. Now, what was the use of these two maneuvers, unless the vessel had been employed in some expedition? "'But how was it we did not see the Bonaventure pass in sight of the island?' observed the reporter, who was anxious to bring forward every possible objection. "'Why, Mr. Spilett,' replied the sailor, "'they would only have to start in the night with a good breeze, and they would be out of sight of the island in two hours.' "'Well,' resumed Gideon Spilett, I ask again, what object could the convicts have had in using the Bonaventure, and why, after they had made use of her, should they have brought her back to port? Why, Mr. Spilett, replied the sailor, we must put that among the unaccountable things, and not think anything more about it. The chief thing is that the Bonaventure was there, and she is there now. 
Only, unfortunately, if the convicts take her a second time, we shall very likely not find her again in her place. Then, Pencroft, said Herbert, would it not be wisest to bring the Bonaventure off to Granite House? Yes and no, answered Pencroft. Or rather, no. The mouth of the Mercy is a bad place for a vessel, and the sea is heavy there. But by hauling her up on the sand, to the foot of the chimneys? Perhaps yes, replied Pencroft. At any rate, since we must leave Granite House for a long expedition, I think the Bonaventure will be safer here during our absence, and we shall do best to leave her here until the island is rid of those blackguards. That is exactly my opinion, said the reporter. At any rate, in the event of bad weather, she will not be exposed here as she would be at the mouth of the Mercy. But suppose the convicts pay her another visit? said Herbert. Well, my boy, replied Pencroft, not finding her here, they would not be long in finding her on the sands of Granite House, and during our absence nothing could hinder them from seizing her. I agree, therefore, with Mr. Spilett, that she must be left in Port Balloon. But, if on our return we have not rid the island of those rascals, it will be prudent to bring our boat to Granite House, until the time when we need not fear any unpleasant visits. "'That's settled. Let us be off,' said the reporter. Pencroft, Herbert, and Gideon Spilett, on their return to Granite House, told the engineer all that had passed, and the latter approved of their arrangements, both for the present and the future. He also promised the sailor that he would study that part of the channel situated between the islet and the coast, so as to ascertain if it would not be possible to make an artificial harbour there by means of dams. In this way the Bonaventure would be always within reach, under the eyes of the colonists, and if necessary, under lock and key. That evening a telegram was sent to Ayrton, requesting him to bring from the corral a couple of goats, which Neb wished to acclimatize to the plateau. Singularly enough, Ayrton did not acknowledge the receipt of the dispatch, as he was accustomed to do. That could not but astonish the engineer. But it might be that Ayrton was not at that moment in the corral, or even that he was on his way back to Granite House. In fact, two days had already passed since his departure, and it had been decided that on the evening of the 10th, or at the latest the morning of the 11th, he should return. The colonists waited, therefore, for Ayrton to appear on Prospect Heights. Neb and Herbert even watched at the bridge, so as to be ready to lower it the moment their companion presented himself. But up to ten in the evening there were no signs of Ayrton. It was, therefore, judged best to send a fresh dispatch, requiring an immediate reply. The bell of the telegraph at Granite House remained mute. The colonists' uneasiness was great. What had happened? Was Ayrton no longer at the corral? Or if he was still there, had he no longer control over his movements? Could they go to the corral in this dark night? They consulted. Some wished to go, the others to remain. But, said Herbert, perhaps some accident has happened to the telegraphic apparatus, so that it works no longer? That may be said the reporter. "'Wait till to-morrow,' replied Cyrus Harding. "'It is possible, indeed, that Ayrton has not received our dispatch, or even that we have not received his.' They waited, 
of course not without some anxiety. At dawn of day, the 11th of November, Harding again sent the electric current along the wire, and received no reply. He tried again. The same result. Off to the corral, said he. And well armed, added Pencroft. It was immediately decided that Granite House should not be left alone, and that Neb should remain there. After having accompanied his friends to Creek Glycerin, he raised the bridge, and, waiting behind a tree, he watched for the return of either his companions or Ayrton. In the event of the pirates presenting themselves and attempting to force the passage, he was to endeavor to stop them by firing on them, and as a last resource he was to take refuge in Granite House, where, the lift once raised, he would be in safety. Cyrus Harding, Gideon Spilett, Herbert, and Pencroft were to repair to the corral, and if they did not find Ayrton, search the neighboring woods. At six o'clock in the morning, the engineer and his three companions had passed Creek Glycerin, and Ned posted himself behind a small mound crowned by several dragon-trees on the left bank of the stream. The colonists, after leaving the plateau of Prospect Heights, immediately took the road to the corral. They shouldered their guns, ready to fire on the slightest hostile demonstration. The two rifles and the two guns had been loaded with ball. The wood was thick on each side of the road, and might easily have concealed the convicts, who, owing to their weapons, would have been really formidable. The colonists walked rapidly, and in silence. Top preceded them, sometimes running on the road, sometimes taking a ramble into the wood, but always quiet and not appearing to fear anything unusual and they could be sure that the faithful dog would not allow them to be surprised, but would bark at the least appearance of danger. Cyrus Harding and his companions followed beside the road the wire which connected the corral with Granite House. After walking for nearly two miles, they had not, as yet, discovered any explanation of the difficulty. The posts were in good order. The wire regularly extended. However, at that moment, the engineer observed that the wire appeared to be slack, and on arriving at post number 74, Herbert, who was in advance, stopped, exclaiming, "'The wire is broken!' His companions hurried forward, and arrived at the spot where the lad was standing. The post was rooted up and lying across the path. The unexpected explanation of the difficulty was here, and it was evident that the dispatches from Granite House had not been received at the corral, nor those from the corral at Granite House. "'It wasn't the wind that blew down this post,' observed Pencroft. "'No,' replied Gideon Spilett. "'The earth has been dug up round its foot, and it has been torn up by the hand of man.' "'Besides, the wire is broken,' added Herbert, showing that the wire had been snapped. "'Is the fracture recent?' asked Harding. "'Yes,' answered Herbert. It has certainly been done quite lately. "'To the corral! To the corral!' exclaimed the sailor. The colonists were now halfway between Granite House and the corral, having still two miles and a half to go. They pressed forward with redoubled speed. Indeed, it was to be feared that some serious accident had occurred in the corral. No doubt, Ayrton might have sent a telegram which had not arrived but this was not the reason why his companions were so uneasy, for, a more unaccountable circumstance, Ayrton, 
who had promised to return the evening before, had not reappeared. In short, it was not without a motive that all communications had been stopped between the corral and Granite House, and who but the convicts could have any interest in interrupting this communication? The settlers hastened on, their hearts oppressed with anxiety. They were sincerely attached to their new companion. Were they to find him struck down by the hands of those of whom he was formerly the leader? Soon they arrived, at the place where the road led along the side of the little stream which flowed from the Red Creek and watered the meadows of the corral. They then moderated their pace so that they should not be out of breath at the moment when a struggle might be necessary. Their guns were in their hands ready cocked. The forest was watched on every side. Top uttered sullen groans which were rather ominous. At last the palisade appeared through the trees. No trace of any damage could be seen. The gate was shut as usual. Deep silence reigned in the corral. Neither the accustomed bleating of the sheep nor Ayrton's voice could be heard. "'Let us enter,' said Cyrus Harding. And the engineer advanced, while his companions, keeping watch about twenty paces behind him, were ready to fire at a moment's notice. Harding raised the inner latch of the gate, and was about to push it back, when Top barked loudly. A report sounded, and was responded to by a cry of pain. Herbert, struck by a bullet, lay stretched on the ground. End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne. Part 3, Chapter 7. At Herbert's cry, Pencroft, letting his gun fall, rushed towards him. They have killed him! he cried. My boy, they have killed him! Cyrus Harding and Gideon Spilett ran to Herbert. The reporter listened to ascertain if the poor lad's heart was still beating. He lives, said he, but he must be carried to Granite House. That is impossible, replied the engineer. Into the corral, then, said Pencroft. In a moment, said Harding. And he ran round the left corner of the palisade. There he found a convict, who, aiming at him, sent a ball through his hat. In a few seconds, before he had even time to fire his second barrel, he fell, struck to the heart by Harding's dagger, more sure even than his gun. During this time Gideon Spilett and the sailor hoisted themselves over the palisade, leaped into the enclosure, threw down the props which supported the inner door, ran into the empty house, and soon poor Herbert was lying on Ayrton's bed. In a few moments Harding was by his side. On seeing Herbert senseless, the sailor's grief was terrible. He sobbed, he cried, he tried to beat his head against the wall. Neither the engineer nor the reporter could calm him. They themselves were choked with emotion. They could not speak. However, they knew that it depended on them to rescue from death the poor boy who was suffering beneath their eyes. Gideon Spilett had not passed through the many incidents by which his life had been checkered 
without acquiring some slight knowledge of medicine. He knew a little of everything, and several times he had been obliged to attend to wounds produced either by a sword, bayonet, or shot. Assisted by Cyrus Harding, he proceeded to render the aid Herbert required. The reporter was immediately struck by the complete stupor in which Herbert lay, a stupor owing either to the hemorrhage or to the shock, the ball having struck a bone with sufficient force to produce a violent concussion. Herbert was deadly pale, and his pulse so feeble that Spilett only felt it beat at long intervals, as if it was on the point of stopping. These symptoms were very serious. Herbert's chest was laid bare, and the blood having been stanched with handkerchiefs, it was bathed with cold water. The contusion, or rather the contused wound, appeared, an oval below the chest between the third and fourth ribs. It was there that Herbert had been hit by the bullet. Cyrus Harding and Gideon Spilett then turned the poor boy over. As they did so, he uttered a moan so feeble that they almost thought it was his last sigh. Herbert's back was covered with blood from another contused wound, by which the ball had immediately escaped. "'God be praised,' said the reporter. "'The ball is not in the body, and we shall not have to extract it.' "'But the heart,' asked Harding. "'The heart has not been touched. If it had been, Herbert would be dead.' "'Dead!' exclaimed Pencroft, with a groan. The sailor had only heard the last words uttered by the reporter. "'No, Pencroft,' replied Cyrus Harding. "'No, he is not dead. His pulse still beats. He has even uttered a moan. But for your boy's sake, calm yourself. We have need of all our self-possession. Do not make us lose it, my friend.' Pencroft was silent, but a reaction set in, and great tears rolled down his cheeks. In the meanwhile, Gideon Spilett endeavoured to collect his ideas, and proceed methodically. After his examination, he had no doubt that the ball, entering in front, between the seventh and eighth ribs, had issued behind between the third and fourth. But what mischief had the ball committed in its passage? What important organs had been reached? A professional surgeon would have had difficulty in determining this at once, and still more so the reporter. However, he knew one thing. This was that he would have to prevent the inflammatory strangulation of the injured parts, then to contend with the local inflammation and fever which would result from the wound, perhaps mortal. Now, what styptics, what antiphlogistics ought to be employed? By what means could inflammation be prevented? At any rate, the most important thing was that the two wounds should be dressed without delay. It did not appear necessary to Gideon Spilett that a fresh flow of blood should be caused by bathing them in tepid water and compressing their lips. The hemorrhage had been very abundant, and Herbert was already too much enfeebled by the loss of blood. The reporter, therefore, thought it best to simply bathe the two wounds with cold water. Herbert was placed on his left side, and was maintained in that position. "'He must not be moved.' said Gideon Spilett. He is in the most favourable position for the wounds in his back and chest to separate easily, and absolute rest is necessary. "'What? Can't we carry him to Granite House?' asked Pencroft. "'No, Pencroft,' replied the reporter. "'I'll pay the villains off. 
cried the sailor, shaking his fist in a menacing manner. Pencroft, said Cyrus Harding. Gideon Spilett had resumed his examination of the wounded boy. Herbert was still so frightfully pale that the reporter felt anxious. Cyrus, said he, I am not a surgeon. I am in terrible perplexity. You must aid me with your advice, your experience. Take courage, my friend, answered the engineer, pressing the reporter's hand. Judge coolly. Think only of this. Herbert must be saved. These words restored in Gideon Spilett that self-possession which he had lost in a moment of discouragement on feeling his great responsibility. He seated himself close to the bed. Cyrus Harding stood near. Pencroft had torn up his shirt and was mechanically making lint. Spilett then explained to Cyrus Harding that he thought he ought first of all to stop the hemorrhage, but not close the two wounds, or cause their immediate cicatrization, for there had been internal perforation, and the separation must not be allowed to accumulate in the chest. Harding approved entirely, and it was decided that the two wounds should be dressed without attempting to close them by immediate coaptation. And now did the colonists possess an efficacious agent to act against the inflammation which might occur? Yes, they had one, for nature had generously lavished it. They had cold water, that is to say, the most powerful sedative that can be employed against inflammation of wounds, the most efficacious therapeutic agent in grave cases, and the one which is now adopted by all physicians. Cold water has, moreover, the advantage of leaving the wound in absolute rest, and preserving it from all premature dressing, a considerable advantage, since it has been found by experience the contact with the air is dangerous during the first days. Gideon Spilett and Cyrus Harding reasoned thus with their simple good sense, and they acted as the best surgeon would have done. Compresses of linen were applied to poor Herbert's two wounds, and were kept constantly wet with cold water. The sailor had at first lighted a fire in the hut, which was not wanting in things necessary for life. Maple sugar, medicinal plants, the same which the lad had gathered on the banks of Lake Grant, enabled them to make some refreshing drinks, which they gave him without his taking any notice of it. His fever was extremely high, and all that day and night passed without his becoming conscious. Herbert's life hung on a thread, and this thread might break at any moment. The next day, the 12th of November, the hopes of Harding and his companions slightly revived. Herbert had come out of his long stupor. He opened his eyes. He recognized Cyrus Harding, the reporter, and Pencroft. He uttered two or three words. He did not know what had happened. They told him, and Spilett begged him to remain perfectly still, telling him that his life was not in danger, and that his wounds would heal in a few days. However, Herbert scarcely suffered at all, and the cold water with which they were continually bathed prevented any inflammation of the wounds. The separation was established in a regular way. The fever did not increase, and it might now be hoped that this terrible wound would not involve any catastrophe. Pencroft felt the swelling of his heart gradually subside. 
He was like a sister of mercy, like a mother by the bed of her child. Herbert dozed again, but his sleep appeared more natural. "'Tell me again that you hope, Mr. Spillett,' said Pencroft. "'Tell me again that you will save Herbert.' "'Yes, we will save him,' replied the reporter. "'The wound is serious, and perhaps even the ball has traversed the lungs, but the perforation of this organ is not fatal.' "'God bless you,' answered Pencroft. As may be believed, during the four-and-twenty hours they had been in the corral, the colonists had no other thought than that of nursing Herbert. They did not think either of the danger which threatened them, should the convicts return, or of the precautions to be taken for the future. But on this day, while Pencroft watched by the sick-bed, Cyrus Harding and the reporter consulted as to what it would be best to do. First of all, they examined the corral. There was not a trace of Ayrton. Had the unhappy man been dragged away by his former accomplices? Had he resisted and been overcome in the struggle? This last supposition was only too probable. Gideon Spilett, at the moment he scaled the palisade, had clearly seen some one of the convicts running along the southern spur of Mount Franklin, towards whom Top had sprung. It was one of those whose object had been so completely defeated by the rocks at the mouth of the Mercy. Besides, the one killed by Harding, and whose body was found outside the enclosure, of course belonged to Bob Harvey's crew. As to the corral, it had not suffered any damage. The gates were closed, and the animals had not been able to disperse in the forest. Nor could they see traces of any struggle, any devastation, either in the hut or in the palisade. The ammunition only, with which Ayrton had been supplied, had disappeared with him. "'The unhappy man has been surprised,' said Harding, "'and as he was a man to defend himself, he must have been overpowered.' "'Yes, that is to be feared,' said the reporter. "'Then, doubtless, the convicts installed themselves in the corral, where they found plenty of everything.' and only fled when they saw us coming. It is very evident, too, that at this moment Ayrton, whether living or dead, is not here. We shall have to beat the forest, said the engineer, and rid the island of these wretches. Pencroft's presentiments were not mistaken, when he wished to hunt them as wild beasts. That would have spared us all these misfortunes. Yes, answered the reporter, but now we have the right to be merciless. At any rate, said the engineer, we are obliged to wait some time, and to remain at the corral, until we can carry Herbert without danger to Granite House. But Neb, asked the reporter, Neb is in safety. But if, uneasy at our absence, he should venture to come? He must not come, returned Cyrus Harding quickly. He would be murdered on the road. It is very probable, however, that he will attempt to rejoin us. Ah, if the telegraph still acted, he might be warned. But that is impossible now. As to leaving Pencroft and Herbert here alone, we could not do it. Well, I will go alone to Granite House. No, no, Cyrus, answered the reporter. You must not expose yourself. Your courage would be of no avail. The villains are evidently watching the corral. 
They are hidden in the thick woods which surround it, and if you go we shall soon have to regret two misfortunes instead of one. But Neb, repeated the engineer, it is now four and twenty hours since he has had any news of us. He will be sure to come. And as he will be less on his guard than we should be ourselves, added Spilett, he will be killed. Is there really no way of warning him? While the engineer thought, his eyes fell on top, who, going backwards and forwards, seemed to say, Am I not here? Top! exclaimed Cyrus Harding. The animal sprang at his master's call. Yes, Top will go, said the reporter, who had understood the engineer. Top can go where we cannot. He will carry to Granite House the news of the corral, and he will bring back to us that from Granite House. Top can go where we cannot. He will carry to Granite House the news of the corral, and he will bring back to us that from Granite House. Quick, said Harding, quick. Spilett rapidly tore a leaf from his notebook, and wrote these words. Herbert wounded. We are at the corral. Be on your guard. Do not leave Granite House. Have the convicts appeared in the neighborhood? Reply by top. This laconic note contained all that Neb ought to know, and at the same time asked all that the colonists wished to know. It was folded and fastened to Top's collar in a conspicuous position. "'Top, my dog,' said the engineer, caressing the animal. "'Neb, Top, Neb, go, go!' Top bounded at these words. He understood. He knew what was expected of him. The road to the corral was familiar to him. In less than an hour he could clear it, and it might be hoped that where neither Cyrus Harding nor the reporter could have ventured without danger, Top, running among the grass or in the wood, would pass unperceived. The engineer went to the gate of the corral and opened it. "'Neb, Top, Neb!' repeated the engineer, again pointing in the direction of Granite House. Top sprang forwards, and almost immediately disappeared. "'He will get there.' said the reporter. Yes, and he will come back, the faithful animal. What o'clock is it? asked Gideon Spilett. Ten. In an hour he may be here. We will watch for his return. The gate of the corral was closed. The engineer and the reporter re-entered the house. Herbert was still in a sleep. Pencroft kept the compresses always wet. Spilett, seeing that there was nothing he could do at that moment, busied himself in preparing some nourishment, while attentively watching that part of the enclosure against the hill at which an attack might be expected. The settlers awaited Top's return with much anxiety. A little before eleven o'clock, Cyrus Harding and the reporter, rifle in hand, were behind the gate, ready to open it at the first bark of their dog. They did not doubt that if Top had arrived safely at Granite House, Neb would have sent him back immediately. They had both been there for about ten minutes, when a report was heard, followed by repeated barks. The engineer opened the gate, and seeing smoke a hundred feet off in the wood, he fired in that direction. Almost immediately Top bounded into the corral, and the gate was quickly shut. "'Top! Top!' exclaimed the engineer taking the dog's great honest head between his hands. A note was fastened to his neck, and Cyrus Harding read these words, 
traced in Neb's large writing. No pirates in the neighborhood of Granite House. I will not stir. Poor Mr. Herbert. End of chapter. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne. Part 3, Chapter 8. So the convicts were still there, watching the corral and determined to kill the settlers one after the other. There was nothing to be done but to treat them as wild beasts. But great precautions must be taken, for just now the wretches had the advantage on their side, seeing, and not being seen, being able to surprise by the suddenness of their attack, yet not to be surprised themselves. Harding made arrangements, therefore, for living in the corral, of which the provisions would last for a tolerable length of time. Ayrton's house had been provided with all that was necessary for existence, and the convicts, scared by the arrival of the settlers, had not had time to pillage it. It was probable, as Gideon Spilett observed, that things had occurred as follows. The six convicts, disembarking on the island, had followed the southern shore, and after having traversed the double shore of the Serpentine Peninsula, not being inclined to venture into the far west woods, they had reached the mouth of Falls River. From this point, by following the right bank of the watercourse, they would arrive at the spurs of Mount Franklin, among which they would naturally seek a retreat, and they could not have been long in discovering the corral, then uninhabited. There they had regularly installed themselves, awaiting the moment to put their abominable schemes into execution. Ayrton's arrival had surprised them, but they had managed to overpower the unfortunate man, and the rest may be easily imagined. Now the convicts, reduced to five, it is true, but well armed, were roaming the woods, and to venture there was to expose themselves to their attacks, which could be neither guarded against nor prevented. "'Wait! There is nothing else to be done,' repeated Cyrus Harding. When Herbert is cured, we can organize a general battue of the island, and have satisfaction of these convicts. That will be the object of our grand expedition at the same time. As the search for our mysterious protector, added Gideon Spilett, finishing the engineer's sentence. Ah, it must be acknowledged, my dear Cyrus, that this time his protection was wanting at the very moment when it was most necessary to us. Who knows? replied the engineer. "'What do you mean?' asked the reporter. "'That we are not at the end of our trouble yet, my dear Spilett, and that his powerful intervention may have another opportunity of exercising itself. But that is not the question now. Herbert's life before everything.' That was the colonist's saddest thought. Several days passed, and the poor boy's state was happily no worse. Cold water, always kept at a suitable temperature, had completely prevented the inflammation of the wounds. It even seemed to the reporter that this water, being slightly sulfurous, which was explained by the neighborhood of the volcano, 
had a more direct action on the healing. The separation was much less abundant, and, thanks to the incessant care by which he was surrounded, Herbert returned to life, and his fever abated. He was besides subjected to a severe diet, and consequently his weakness was and would be extreme, but there was no want of refreshing drinks, and absolute rest was of the greatest benefit to him. Cyrus Harding, Gideon Spilett, and Pencroft had become very skilful in dressing the lad's wounds. All the linen in the house had been sacrificed. Herbert's wounds, covered with compresses and lint, were pressed neither too much nor too little, so as to cause their citricization without affecting any inflammatory reaction. The reporter used extreme care in the dressing, knowing well the importance of it, and repeating to his companions that which most surgeons willingly admit, that it is perhaps rarer to see a dressing well done than an operation well performed. In ten days, on the 22nd of November, Herbert was considerably better. He had begun to take some nourishment. The color was returning to his cheeks, and his bright eyes smiled at his nurses. He talked a little, notwithstanding Pencroft's efforts, who talked incessantly to prevent him from beginning to speak, and told him the most improbable stories. Herbert had questioned him on the subject of Ayrton, whom he was astonished not to see near him, thinking that he was at the corral. But the sailor, not wishing to distress Herbert, contented himself by replying that Ayrton had rejoined Neb, so as to defend Granite House. "'Humph!' said Pencroft. "'These pirates! They are gentlemen who have no right to any consideration, and the captain wanted to win them by kindness. I'll send them some kindness, but in the shape of a good bullet!' "'And have they not been seen again?' asked Herbert. "'No, my boy,' answered the sailor. "'But we shall find them, and when you are cured, we shall see if the cowards who strike us from behind will dare to meet us face to face.' "'I am still very weak, my poor Pencroft.' "'Well, your strength will return gradually. What's a ball through the chest? Nothing but a joke. I've seen many, and I don't think much of them.' At last things appeared to be going on well, and if no complication occurred, Herbert's recovery might be regarded as certain. But what would have been the condition of the colonists if his state had been aggravated? If, for example, the ball had remained in his body, if his arm or his leg had had to be amputated? No, said Spilett more than once, I have never thought of such a contingency without shuddering. And yet, if it had been necessary to operate, said Harding one day to him, you would not have hesitated? No, Cyrus, said Gideon Spilett, but thank God that we have been spared this complication. As in so many other conjectures, the colonists had appealed to the logic of that simple good sense of which they had made use so often, and once more, thanks to the general knowledge, it had succeeded but might not a time come when all their science would be at fault? They were alone on the island. Now men in all states of society are necessary to each other. Cyrus Harding knew this well, and sometimes he asked if some circumstance might not occur which they would be powerless to surmount. 
It appeared to him besides that he and his companions, till then so fortunate, had entered into an unlucky period. During the two years and a half which had elapsed since their escape from Richmond, it might be said that they had had everything their own way. The island had abundantly supplied them with minerals, vegetables, animals, and as nature had constantly loaded them, their science had known how to take advantage of what she offered them. The well-being of the colony was therefore complete. Moreover, in certain occurrences, an inexplicable influence had come to their aid. But all that could only be for a time. In short, Cyrus Harding believed that fortune had turned against them. In fact, the convict's ship had appeared in the waters of the island, and if the pirates had been, so to speak, miraculously destroyed, six of them at least had escaped the catastrophe. They had disembarked on the island, and it was almost impossible to get at the five who survived. Ayrton had no doubt been murdered by these wretches, who possessed firearms, and at the first use that they had made of them, Herbert had fallen, wounded almost mortally. Were these the first blows aimed by adverse fortune at the colonists? This was often asked by Harding. This was often repeated by the reporter, and it appeared to him also that the intervention, so strange, yet so efficacious, which till then had served them so well, had now failed them. Had this mysterious being, whatever he was, whose existence could not be denied, abandoned the island? Had he in his turn succumbed? No reply was possible to these questions, but it must not be imagined that because Harding and his companions spoke of these things, they were meant to despair. Far from that. They looked their situation in the face. They analyzed their chances. They prepared themselves for any event. They stood firm and straight before the future and if adversity was at last to strike them, it would find in them men prepared to struggle against it. End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne Part Three, Chapter Nine The convalescence of the young invalid was regularly progressing. One thing only was now to be desired, that his state would allow him to be brought to Granite House. However well built and supplied the corral house was, it could not be so comfortable as the healthy granite dwelling. Besides, it did not offer the same security, and its tenants, notwithstanding their watchfulness, were here always in fear of some shot from the convicts. There, on the contrary, in the middle of that impregnable and inaccessible cliff, they would have nothing to fear, and any attacks on their persons would certainly fail. They therefore waited impatiently for the moment when Herbert might be moved without danger from his wound, and they were determined to make this move, although the communication through Jacamar Wood was very difficult. They had no news from Neb. 
but were not uneasy on that account. The courageous negro, well entrenched in the depths of Granite House, would not allow himself to be surprised. Top had not been sent again to him, as it appeared useless to expose the faithful dog to some shot which might deprive the settlers of their most useful auxiliary. They waited, therefore, although they were anxious to be reunited at Granite House. It pained the engineer to see his forces divided, for it gave great advantage to the pirates. Since Ayrton's disappearance they were only four against five, for Herbert could not yet be counted, and this was not the least care of the brave boy, who well understood the trouble of which he was the cause. The question of knowing how, in their condition, they were to act against the pirates was thoroughly discussed on the twenty-ninth of November by Cyrus Harding, Gideon Spilett, and Pencroft, at a moment when Herbert was asleep and could not hear them. "'My friends,' said the reporter, after they had talked of Neb and of the impossibility of communicating with him, "'I think, like you, that to venture on the road to the corral would be to risk receiving a gunshot without being able to return it. But do you not think that the best thing to be done now is to openly give chase to these wretches?' "'That is just what I was thinking,' answered Pencroft. "'I believe we're not fellows to be afraid of a bullet.' And as for me, if Captain Harding approves, I'm ready to dash into the forest. Why, hang it, man, one man is equal to another. But is he equal to five? asked the engineer. I will join Pencroft, said the reporter, and both of us, well armed and accompanied by Top. My dear Spilett, and you, Pencroft, answered Harding, let us reason coolly. If the convicts were hid in one spot of the island, if we knew that spot, and had only to dislodge them, I would undertake a direct attack. But is there not occasion to fear, on the contrary, that they are sure to fire the first shot?' "'Well, Captain,' cried Pencroft, "'a bullet does not always reach its mark.' "'That which struck Herbert did not miss, Pencroft,' replied the engineer. "'Besides,' Observe that if both of you left the corral, I should remain here alone to defend it. Do you imagine that the convicts will not see you leave it? That they will not allow you to enter the forest, and that they will not attack it during your absence, knowing that there is no one here but a wounded boy and a man? You are right, Captain, replied Pencroft, his chest swelling with sullen anger. You are right and they will do all they can to retake the corral, which they know to be well stored, and alone you could not hold it against them. Oh, if we were only at Granite House! If we were at Granite House, answered the engineer, the case would be very different. There I should not be afraid to leave Herbert with one, while the other three went to search the forests of the island. But we are at the corral." and it is best to stay here until we can leave it together." Cyrus Harding's reasoning was unanswerable, and his companions understood it well. "'If only Ayrton was still one of us,' said Gideon Spilett. "'Poor fellow! His return to social life will have been but of short duration.' "'If he is dead,' added Pencroft, in a peculiar tone, "'do you hope, then, Pencroft, that the villains have spared him?' asked Gideon Spilett. "'Yes, if they had any interest in doing so.' "'What? 
You suppose that Ayrton, finding his old companions, forgetting all that he owes us, who knows? answered the sailor, who did not hazard this shameful supposition without hesitating. Pencroft, said Harding, taking the sailor's arm, that is a wicked idea of yours, and you will distress me much if you persist in speaking thus. I will answer for Ayrton's fidelity. And I also, added the reporter quickly. Yes, yes, Captain, I was wrong, replied Pencroft. It was a wicked idea indeed that I had, and nothing justifies it. But what can I do? I'm not in my senses. This imprisonment in the corral wearies me horribly, and I have never felt so excited as I do now. Be patient, Pencroft, replied the engineer. How long will it be, my dear Spilett, before you think Herbert may be carried to Granite House? That is difficult to say, Cyrus, answered the reporter, for any imprudence might involve terrible consequences. But his convalescence is progressing, and if he continues to gain strength, in eight days from now, well, we shall see. Eight days! That would put off the return to Granite House until the first days of December. At this time two months of spring had already passed. The weather was fine, and the heat began to be great. The forests of the island were in full leaf, and the time was approaching when the usual crops ought to be gathered. The return to the plateau of Prospect Heights would, therefore, be followed by extensive agricultural labors, interrupted only by the projected expedition through the island. It can therefore be well understood how injurious this seclusion in the corral must have been to the colonists. But if they were compelled to bow before necessity, they did not do so without impatience. Once or twice the reporter ventured out into the road and made the tour of the palisade. Top accompanied him, and Gideon Spilett, his gun cocked, was ready for any emergency. He met with no misadventure, and found no suspicious traces. His dog would have warned him of any danger, and, as Top did not bark, it might be concluded that there was nothing to fear, at that moment at least, and that the convicts were occupied in another part of the island. However, on his second sortie, on the 27th of November, Gideon Spilett, who had ventured a quarter of a mile into the woods, towards the south of the mountain, remarked that Top scented something. The dog had no longer his unconcerned manner. He went backwards and forwards, ferreting among the grass and bushes as if his smell had revealed some suspicious object to him. Gideon Spilett followed Top, encouraged him, excited him by his voice, while keeping a sharp lookout, his gun ready to fire, and sheltering himself behind the trees. It was not probable that Top scented the presence of man, for in that case he would have announced it by half-uttered, sullen, angry barks. Now, as he did not growl, it was because danger was neither near nor approaching. Nearly five minutes passed thus, Top rummaging, the reporter following him prudently, when all at once the dog rushed towards a thick bush and drew out a rag. It was a piece of cloth, stained and torn, which Spilett immediately brought back to the corral. There it was examined by the colonists, who found that it was a fragment of 
Ayrton's waistcoat, a piece of that felt, manufactured solely by the Granite House factory. "'You see, Pencroft,' observed Harding, "'there has been resistance on the part of the unfortunate Ayrton. The convicts have dragged him away in spite of himself. Do you still doubt his honesty?' "'No, Captain,' answered the sailor, "'and I repented of my suspicion a long time ago. But it seems to me that something may be learned from the incident.' "'What is that?' asked the reporter. "'It is that Ayrton was not killed at the corral, that they dragged him away living, since he has resisted. Therefore, perhaps, he is still living.' "'Perhaps, indeed,' replied the engineer, who remained thoughtful. This was a hope to which Ayrton's companions could still hold. Indeed, they had before believed that, surprised in the corral, Ayrton had fallen by a bullet, as Herbert had fallen. But if the convicts had not killed him at first, if they had brought him living to another part of the island, might it not be admitted that he was still their prisoner? Perhaps, even, one of them had found in Ayrton his old Australian companion Ben Joyce, the chief of the escaped convicts. And who knows but that they had conceived the impossible hope of bringing Ayrton to themselves? He would have been very useful to them, if they had been able to make him turn traitor. This incident was, therefore, favorably interpreted at the corral, and it no longer appeared impossible that they should find Ayrton again. On his side, if he was only a prisoner, Ayrton would no doubt do all he could to escape from the hands of the villains, and this would be a powerful aid to the settlers. "'At any rate,' observed Gideon Spilett, if, happily, Ayrton did manage to escape, he would go directly to Granite House, for he could not know of the attempted assassination of which Herbert has been a victim, and consequently would never think of our being imprisoned in the corral. "'Oh, I wish that he was there at Granite House,' cried Pencroft, "'and that we were there, too. For although the rascals can do nothing to our house, they may plunder the plateau, our plantations, our poultry-yard, Pencroft had become a thorough farmer, heartily attached to his crops. But it must be said that Herbert was more anxious than any to return to Granite House, for he knew how much the presence of the settlers was needed there. And it was he who was keeping them at the corral. Therefore one idea occupied his mind, to leave the corral and when. He believed he could bear removal to Granite House. He was sure his strength would return more quickly in his room, with the air and sight of the sea. Several times he pressed Gideon Spilett, but the latter, fearing, with good reason, that Herbert's wounds, half-healed, might reopen on the way, did not give the order to start. However, something occurred which compelled Cyrus Harding and his two friends to yield to the lad's wish and God alone knew that this determination might cause them grief and remorse. It was the twenty-ninth of November, seven o'clock in the evening. The three settlers were talking in Herbert's room, when they heard Top utter quick barks. Harding, Pencroft, and Spilett seized their guns and ran out of the house. Top, at the foot of the palisade, was jumping, barking, but it was with pleasure, not anger. "'Someone is coming.' Yes, it is not an enemy. Neb, perhaps? 
or Ayrton. These words had hardly been exchanged between the engineer and his two companions when a body leaped over the palisade and fell on the ground inside the corral. It was Jupe, Master Jupe in person, to whom Top immediately gave a most cordial reception. "'Jupe!' exclaimed Pencroft. "'Neb has sent him to us,' said the reporter. "'Then,' replied the engineer, "'he must have some note on him.' Pencroft rushed up to the orang. Certainly if Neb had any important matter to communicate to his master, he could not employ a more sure or more rapid messenger, who could pass where neither the colonists could, nor even Top himself. Cyrus Harding was not mistaken. At Jupe's neck hung a small bag, and in this bag was found a little note traced by Neb's hand. The despair of Harding and his companions may be imagined when they read these words. Friday six o'clock in the morning plateau invaded by convicts neb they gazed at each other without uttering a word then they re-entered the house what were they to do the convicts on prospect heights that was disaster devastation ruin herbert on seeing the engineer the reporter and pencroft re-enter guessed that their situation was aggravated and when he saw jupe he no longer doubted that some misfortune menaced Granite House. "'Captain Harding,' said he, "'I must go. I can bear the journey. I must go.' Gideon Spilett approached Herbert, then having looked at him. "'Let us go, then,' said he. The question was quickly decided whether Herbert should be carried on a litter, or in the cart which had brought Ayrton to the corral. The motion of the litter would have been more easy for the wounded lad but it would have necessitated two bearers, that is to say, there would have been two guns less for defence if an attack was made on the road. Would they not, on the contrary, by employing the cart, leave every arm free? Was it impossible to place the mattress on which Herbert was lying in it, and to advance with so much care that any jolt should be avoided? It could be done. The cart was brought. Pencroft harnessed the onager. Cyrus Harding and the reporter raised Herbert's mattress and placed it on the bottom of the cart. The weather was fine. The sun's bright rays glanced through the trees. "'Are the guns ready?' asked Cyrus Harding. They were. The engineer and Pencroft, each armed with a double-barreled gun, and Gideon Spilett carrying his rifle, had nothing to do but start. "'Are you comfortable, Herbert?' asked the engineer. "'Ah, Captain,' replied the lad, "'don't be uneasy. I shall not die on the road.' While speaking thus, it could be seen that the poor boy had called up all his energy, and by the energy of a powerful will had collected his failing strength. The engineer felt his heart sink painfully. He still hesitated to give the signal for departure, but that would have driven Herbert to despair, killed him, perhaps. "'Forward,' said Harding. The gate of the corral was opened. Jupe and Top, who knew when to be silent, ran in advance. The cart came out, the gate was reclosed, and the onager, led by Pencroft, advanced at a slow pace. Certainly it would have been safer to have taken a different road than that which led straight from the corral to Granite House, but the cart would have met with great difficulties in moving under the trees. 
It was necessary, therefore, to follow this way, although it was well known to the convicts. Cyrus Harding and Gideon Spilett walked one on each side of the cart, ready to answer to any attack. However, it was not probable that the convicts would have left the plateau of Prospect Heights. Neb's note had evidently been written and sent as soon as the convicts had shown themselves there. Now this note was dated six o'clock in the morning, and the active orang, accustomed to come frequently to the corral, had taken scarcely three-quarters of an hour to cross the five miles which separated it from Granite House. They would, therefore, be safe at that time, and if there was any occasion for firing, it would probably not be until they were in the neighborhood of Granite House. However, the colonists kept a strict watch. Top and Jupe, the latter armed with his club, sometimes in front, sometimes beating the wood at the sides of the road, signalized no danger. The cart advanced slowly under Pencroft's guidance. It had left the corral at half-past seven. An hour after, four out of the five miles had been cleared, without any incident having occurred. The road was as deserted as all that part of the Jacamar Wood which lay between the Mercy and the lake. There was no occasion for any warning. The wood appeared as deserted as on the day when the colonists first landed on the island. They approached the plateau. Another mile, and they would see the bridge over Creek Glycerin. Cyrus Harding expected to find it in its place, supposing that the convicts would have crossed it, and that, after having passed one of the streams which enclosed the plateau, they would have taken the precaution to lower it again, so as to keep open a retreat. At length an opening in the trees allowed the sea horizon to be seen, but the cart continued its progress for not one of its defenders thought of abandoning it. At that moment Pencroft stopped the onager, and in a hoarse voice, "'Oh, the villains!' he exclaimed, and he pointed to a thick smoke rising from the mill, the sheds, and the buildings at the poultry-yard. A man was moving about in the midst of the smoke. It was Neb. His companions uttered a shout. He heard and ran to meet them. The convicts had left the plateau nearly half an hour before, having devastated it. "'And Mr. Herbert?' asked Neb. Gideon Spilett returned to the cart. Herbert had lost consciousness. End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne Part Three, Chapter Ten Of the convicts, the dangers which menaced Granite House, the ruins with which the plateau was covered, the colonists thought no longer. Herbert's critical state outweighed all other considerations. Would the removal prove fatal to him by causing some internal injury? The reporter could not affirm it, but he and his companions almost despaired of the result. The cart was brought to the bend of the river. There some branches, disposed as a litter, received the mattress on which lay the unconscious Herbert.' 
ten minutes after, Cyrus Harding, Spilett, and Pencroft were at the foot of the cliff, leaving Neb to take the cart on to the plateau of Prospect Heights. The lift was put in motion, and Herbert was soon stretched on his bed in Granite House. What cares were lavished on him to bring him back to life? He smiled for a moment on finding himself in his room, but could scarcely even murmur a few words, so great was his weakness. Gideon Spilett examined his wounds. He feared to find them reopened, having been imperfectly healed. There was nothing of the sort. From whence, then, came this prostration? Why was Herbert so much worse? The lad then fell into a kind of feverish sleep, and the reporter and Pencroft remained near the bed. During this time Harding told Neb all that had happened at the corral, and Neb recounted to his master the events of which the plateau had just been the theatre. It was only during the preceding night that the convicts had appeared on the edge of the forest, at the approaches to Creek Glycerine. Neb, who was watching near the poultry-yard, had not hesitated to fire at one of the pirates, who was about to cross the stream, but in the darkness he could not tell whether the man had been hit or not. At any rate, it was not enough to frighten away the band, and Neb had only just time to get up to Granite House, where at least he was in safety. But what was he to do there? How prevent the devastations with which the convicts threatened the plateau? Had Neb any means by which to warn his master? And besides, in what situation were the inhabitants of the corral themselves? Cyrus Harding and his companions had left on the 11th of November, and it was now the twenty-ninth. It was, therefore, nineteen days since Neb had had other news than that brought by Top, disastrous news. Ayrton disappeared, Herbert severely wounded, the engineer, reporter, and sailor, as it were, imprisoned in the corral. What was he to do? asked poor Neb. Personally he had nothing to fear, for the convicts could not reach him in Granite House but the buildings, the plantations, all their arrangements at the mercy of the pirates. Would it not be best to let Cyrus Harding judge of what he ought to do, and to warn him at least of the danger which threatened him? Neb then thought of employing Jupe, and confiding a note to him. He knew the Orang's great intelligence, which had been often put to the proof. Jupe understood the word corral, which had been frequently pronounced before him, and it may be remembered, too, that he had often driven the cart thither in company with Pencroft. Day had not yet dawned. The active orang would know how to pass unperceived through the woods, of which the convicts besides would think he was a native. Neb did not hesitate. He wrote the note, he tied it to Jupe's neck, he brought the ape to the door of Granite House, from which he let down a long cord to the ground. Then, several times, he repeated these words, Joop! Joop! Corral! Corral! The creature understood, seized the cord, glided rapidly down to the beach, and disappeared in the darkness, without the convict's attention having been in the least excited. "'You did well, Neb,' said Harding. "'But perhaps in not warning us you would have done still better.' And in speaking thus, Cyrus Harding thought of Herbert, whose recovery the removal had so seriously checked. Neb ended his account. 
the convicts had not appeared at all on the beach. Not knowing the number of the island's inhabitants, they might suppose that Granite House was defended by a large party. They must have remembered that during the attack by the brig numerous shot had been fired both from the lower and upper rocks, and no doubt they did not wish to expose themselves. But the plateau of Prospect Heights was open to them, and not covered by the fire of Granite House. They gave themselves up, therefore, to their instinct of destruction, plundering, burning, devastating everything, and only retiring half an hour before the arrival of the colonists, whom they believed still confined in the corral. On their retreat Neb hurried out. He climbed the plateau at the risk of being perceived and fired at, tried to extinguish the fire which was consuming the buildings of the poultry-yard, and had struggled, though in vain, against it until the cart appeared at the edge of the wood. Such had been these serious events. The presence of the convicts constituted a permanent source of danger to the settlers in Lincoln Island, until then so happy, and who might now expect still greater misfortunes. Spilett remained in Granite House with Herbert and Pencroft, while Cyrus Harding, accompanied by Neb, proceeded to judge for himself of the extent of the disaster. It was fortunate that the convicts had not advanced to the foot of Granite House. The workshop at the chimneys would in that case not have escaped destruction. But after all, this evil would have been more easily reparable than the ruins accumulated on the plateau of Prospect Heights. Harding and Neb proceeded towards the Mercy, and ascended its left bank without meeting with any trace of the convicts, nor on the other side of the river, in the depths of the wood, could they perceive any suspicious indications. Besides, it might be supposed that in all probability either the convicts knew of the return of the settlers to Granite House, by having seen them pass on the road from the corral, or, after the devastation of the plateau, they had penetrated into Jacamar Wood, following the course of the Mercy, and were thus ignorant of their return. In the former case they must have returned towards the corral, now without defenders, and which contained valuable stores. In the latter they must have regained their encampment, and would wait an opportunity to recommence the attack. It was, therefore, possible to prevent them, but any enterprise to clear the island was now rendered difficult by reason of Herbert's condition. Indeed, their whole force would have been barely sufficient to cope with the convicts, and just now no one could leave Granite House. The engineer and Neb arrived on the plateau. Desolation reigned everywhere. The fields had been trampled over. The ears of wheat, which were nearly full-grown, lay on the ground the other plantations had not suffered less. The kitchen-garden was destroyed. Happily, Granite House possessed a store of seed which would enable them to repair these misfortunes. As to the wall and buildings of the poultry-yard and the onager's stable, the fire had destroyed all. A few terrified creatures roamed over the plateau. The birds, which during the fire had taken refuge on the waters of the lake, had already returned to their accustomed spot, and were dabbling on the banks. Everything would have to be reconstructed. Cyrus Harding's face, which was paler than usual, expressed an internal anger which he commanded with difficulty, but he did not utter a word. 
Once more he looked at his devastated fields, and at the smoke which still rose from the ruins. Then he returned to Granite House. The following days were the saddest of any that the colonists had passed on the island. Herbert's weakness visibly increased. It appeared that a more serious malady, the consequence of the profound physiological disturbance he had gone through, threatened to declare itself, and Gideon Spilett feared such an aggravation of his condition that he would be powerless to fight against it. In fact, Herbert remained in an almost continuous state of drowsiness, and symptoms of delirium began to manifest themselves. Refreshing drinks were the only remedies at the colonist's disposal. The fever was not as yet very high, but it soon appeared that it would probably recur at regular intervals. Gideon Spilett first recognized this on the 6th of December. The poor boy, whose fingers, nose, and ears had become extremely pale, was at first seized with slight shiverings, horripilations, and tremblings. His pulse was weak and irregular, his skin dry, his thirst intense. To this soon succeeded a hot fit. His face became flushed, his skin reddened, his pulse quick. Then a profuse perspiration broke out, after which the fever seemed to diminish. The attack had lasted nearly five hours. Gideon Spilett had not left Herbert, who, it was only too certain, was now seized by an intermittent fever, and this fever must be cured at any cost before it should assume a more serious aspect. "'And in order to cure it,' said Spilett to Cyrus Harding, "'we need a febrifuge.' "'A febrifuge,' answered the engineer. "'We have neither Peruvian bark nor sulphate of quinine.' "'No,' said Gideon Spilett, "'but there are willows on the border of the lake.' and the bark of the willow might, perhaps, prove to be a substitute for quinine. "'Let us try it without losing a moment,' replied Cyrus Harding. The bark of the willow has, indeed, been justly considered as a succedaneum for Peruvian bark, as has also that of the horse-chestnut tree, the leaf of the holly, the snake-root, etc. It was evidently necessary to make trial of this substance, although not so valuable as Peruvian bark, and to employ it in its natural state, since they had no means of extracting its essence. Cyrus Harding went himself to cut from the trunk of a species of black willow a few pieces of bark. He brought them back to Granite House, and reduced them to a powder, which was administered that same evening to Herbert. The night passed without any important change. Herbert was somewhat delirious, but the fever did not reappear in the night, and did not return either during the following day. Pencroft again began to hope. Gideon Spilett said nothing. It might be that the fever was not quotidian, but tertian, and that it would return next day. Therefore he awaited the next day with the greatest anxiety. It might have been remarked besides that during this period Herbert remained utterly prostrate, his head weak and giddy. Another symptom alarmed the reporter to the highest degree. Herbert's liver became congested, and soon a more intense delirium showed that his brain was also affected. Gideon Spilett was overwhelmed by this new complication. He took the engineer aside. 
"'It is a malignant fever,' said he. "'A malignant fever!' cried Harding. "'You are mistaken, Spilett. A malignant fever does not declare itself spontaneously. Its germ must previously have existed.' "'I am not mistaken,' replied the reporter. Herbert no doubt contracted the germ of this fever in the marshes of the island. He has already had one attack. Should a second come on, and should we not be able to prevent a third, he is lost. But the willow-bark? That is insufficient, answered the reporter, and the third attack of a malignant fever, which is not arrested by means of quinine, is always fatal. Fortunately, Pencroft heard nothing of this conversation, or he would have gone mad. It may be imagined what anxiety the engineer and the reporter suffered during the day of the 7th of December and the following night. Towards the middle of the day the second attack came on. The crisis was terrible. Herbert felt himself sinking. He stretched his arms towards Cyrus Harding, towards Spilett, towards Pencroft. He was so young to die. The scene was heart-rending. They were obliged to send Pencroft away. The fit lasted five hours. It was evident that Herbert could not survive a third. The night was frightful. In his delirium Herbert uttered words which went to the heart of his companions. He struggled with the convicts, he called to Ayrton, he poured forth entreaties to that mysterious being, that powerful unknown protector, whose image was stamped upon his mind. Then he again fell into a deep exhaustion, which completely prostrated him. Several times Gideon Spilett thought that the poor boy was dead. The next day, the 8th of December, was but a succession of the fainting fits. Herbert's thin hands clutched the sheets. They had administered further doses of pounded bark, but the reporter expected no result from it. "'If before to-morrow morning we have not given him a more energetic febrifuge,' said the reporter, "'Herbert will be dead.' Night arrived. The last night, it was too much to be feared, of the good, brave, intelligent boy, so far in advance of his years, and who was loved by all as their own child. The only remedy which existed against this terrible malignant fever, the only specific which could overcome it, was not to be found in Lincoln Island. During the night of the 8th of December, Herbert was seized by a more violent delirium. His liver was fearfully congested, his brain affected, and already it was impossible for him to recognize anyone. Would he live until the next day, until that third attack which must infallibly carry him off? It was not probable. His strength was exhausted, and in the intervals of fever he lay as one dead. Towards three o'clock in the morning Herbert uttered a piercing cry. He seemed to be torn by a supreme convulsion. Neb, who was near him, terrified, ran into the next room where his companions were watching. Top, at that moment, barked in a strange manner. All rushed in immediately and managed to restrain the dying boy, who was endeavouring to throw himself out of his bed, while Spilett, taking his arm, felt his pulse gradually quicken. It was five in the morning. The rays of the rising sun began to shine in at the windows of Granite House. 
It promised to be a fine day, and this day was to be poor Herbert's last. A ray glanced on the table, placed near the bed. Suddenly Pencroft, uttering a cry, pointed to the table. On it lay a little oblong box, of which the cover bore these words, Sulphate of Quinine. End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne Part 3, Chapter 11 Gideon Spilett took the box and opened it. It contained nearly two hundred grains of a white powder, a few particles of which he carried to his lips. The extreme bitterness of the substance precluded all doubt. It was certainly the precious extract of quinine, that pre-eminent antifebrile. This powder must be administered to Herbert without delay. How it came there might be discussed later. "'Some coffee,' said Spilett. In a few moments Ned brought a cup of the warm infusion. Gideon Spilett threw into it about eighteen grains of quinine, and they succeeded in making Herbert drink the mixture. There was still time, for the third attack of the malignant fever had not yet shown itself. How they longed to be able to add that it would not return! Besides, it must be remarked, the hopes of all had now revived. The mysterious influence had been again exerted, and in a critical moment when they had despaired of it. In a few hours Herbert was much calmer. The colonists could now discuss this incident. The intervention of the stranger was more evident than ever. But how had he been able to penetrate during the night into Granite House? It was inexplicable, and in truth the proceedings of the genius of the island were not less mysterious than was that genius himself. During this day the sulphate of quinine was administered to Herbert every three hours. The next day some improvement in Herbert's condition was apparent. Certainly he was not out of danger, intermittent fevers being subject to frequent and dangerous relapses, but the most assiduous care was bestowed on him. And besides, the specific was at hand, nor, doubtless, was he who had brought it far distant. And the hearts of all were animated by returning hope. This hope was not disappointed. Ten days after, on the 20th of December, Herbert's convalescence commenced. He was still weak, and strict diet had been imposed upon him, but no access of fever supervened. And then the poor boy submitted with such docility to all the prescriptions ordered him. He longed so to get well. Pencroft was as a man who had been drawn up from the bottom of an abyss. Fits of joy approaching delirium seized him. When the time for the third attack had passed by, he nearly suffocated the reporter in his embrace. Since then he always called him Dr. Spilett. The real doctor, however, remained undiscovered. "'We will find him,' repeated the sailor. Certainly this man, whoever he was, might expect a somewhat too energetic embrace from the worthy Pencroft. The month of December ended and with it the year 1867, 
during which the colonists of Lincoln Island had of late been so severely tried. They commenced the year 1868 with magnificent weather, great heat, and a tropical temperature, delightfully cooled by the sea-breeze. Herbert's recovery progressed, and, from his bed, placed near one of the windows of Granite House, he could inhale the fresh air, charged with ozone, which could not fail to restore his health. His appetite returned, and what numberless delicate, savoury little dishes Ned prepared for him! "'It is enough to make one wish to have a fever oneself,' said Pencroft. During all this time the convicts did not once appear to, in the vicinity of Granite House. There was no news of Ayrton, and though the engineer and Herbert still had some hopes of finding him again, their companions did not doubt but that the unfortunate man had perished. However, this uncertainty could not last, and when once the lad should have recovered, the expedition, the result of which must be so important, would be undertaken. But they would have to wait a month, perhaps, for all the strength of the colony must be put into requisition to obtain satisfaction from the convicts. However, Herbert's convalescence progressed rapidly. The congestion of the liver had disappeared, and his wounds might be considered completely healed. During the month of January, important work was done on the plateau of Prospect Heights, but it consisted solely in saving as much as was possible from the devastated crops, either of corn or vegetables. The grain and the plants were gathered, so as to provide a new harvest for the approaching half-season. With regard to rebuilding the poultry wall, yard, or stables, Cyrus Harding preferred to wait. While he and his companions were in pursuit of the convicts, the latter might very probably pay another visit to the plateau, and it would be useless to give them an opportunity of recommencing their work of destruction. When the island should be cleared of these miscreants, they would set about rebuilding. The young convalescent began to get up in the second week of January, at first for one hour a day, then two, then three. His strength visibly returned, so vigorous was his constitution. He was now eighteen years of age. He was tall, and promised to become a man of noble and commanding presence. From this time his recovery, while still requiring care, and Dr. Spillett was very strict, made rapid progress. Towards the end of the month Herbert was already walking about on Prospect Heights and the beach. He derived from several sea-baths, which he took in company with Pencroft and Neb, the greatest possible benefit. Cyrus Harding thought he might now settle the day for their departure, for which the 15th of February was fixed. The nights, very clear at this time of year, would be favourable to the researches they intended to make all over the island. The necessary preparations for this exploration were now commenced, and were important, for the colonists had sworn not to return to Granite House until their twofold object had been achieved. On the one hand, to exterminate the convicts, and rescue Ayrton, if he was still living. On the other, to discover who it was that presided so effectually over the fortunes of the colony. Of Lincoln Island, the settlers knew thoroughly all the eastern coast from Claw Cape to the Mandible Capes, the extensive Tadorn Marsh, the neighborhood of Lake Grant, Jackamar Wood, between the road to the Corral and the Mercy, 
the courses of the Mercy and Red Creek, and lastly the spurs of Mount Franklin, among which the corral had been established. They had explored, though only in an imperfect manner, the vast shore of Washington Bay from Claw Cape to Reptile End, the woody and marshy border of the west coast, and the interminable downs, ending at the open mouth of Shark Gulf. But they had in no way surveyed the woods which covered the Serpentine Peninsula, all to the right of the Mercy, the left bank of the Falls River, and the wilderness of spurs and valleys which supported three-quarters of the base of Mount Franklin, to the east, the north, and the west, and where doubtless many secret retreats existed. Consequently, many millions of acres of the island had still escaped their investigations. It was, therefore, decided that the expedition should be carried through the far west, so as to include all that region situated on the right of the Mercy. It might perhaps be better worth while to go direct to the corral, where it might be supposed that the convicts had again taken refuge, either to pillage or to establish themselves there. But either the devastation of the corral would have been an accomplished fact by this time, and it would be too late to prevent it, or it had been the convicts' interest to entrench themselves there, and there would be still time to go and turn them out on their return. Therefore, after some discussion, the first plan was adhered to, and the settlers resolved to proceed through the wood to Reptile End. They would make their way with their hatchets, and thus lay the first draft of a road which would place Granite House in communication with the end of the peninsula for a length of from sixteen to seventeen miles. The cart was in good condition. The onagers, well rested, could go a long journey. Provisions, camp effects, a portable stove, and various utensils were packed in the cart, as also weapons and ammunition, carefully chosen from the now complete arsenal of Granite House. But it was necessary to remember that the convicts were, perhaps, roaming about the woods, and then in the midst of these thick forests a shot might quickly be fired and received. It was therefore resolved that the little band of settlers should remain together and not separate under any pretext whatever. It was also decided that no one should remain at Granite House. Top and Jupe themselves were to accompany the expedition, the inaccessible dwelling needing no guard. The 14th of February, eve of the departure, was consecrated entirely to repose, and thanksgiving addressed by the colonists to the Creator. A place in the cart was reserved for Herbert, who, though thoroughly convalescent, was still a little weak. The next morning, at daybreak, Cyrus Harding took the necessary measures to protect Granite House from any invasion. The ladders, which were formerly used for the ascent, were brought to the chimneys and buried deep in the sand, so that they might be available on the return of the colonists, for the machinery of the lift had been taken to pieces and nothing of the apparatus remained. Pencroft stayed the last in Granite House in order to finish this work, and he then lowered himself down by means of a double rope held below, and which, when once hauled down, left no communication between the upper landing and the beach. The weather was magnificent. "'We shall have a warm day of it,' said the reporter, laughing. "Pooh, Dr. Spilett,' answered Pencroft, 
we shall walk under the shade of the trees and shan't even see the sun forward said the engineer the cart was waiting on the beach before the chimneys the reporter made herbert take his place in it during the first hours at least of the journey and the lad was obliged to submit to his doctor's orders neb placed himself at the onager's heads cyrus harding the reporter and the sailor walked in front top bounded joyfully along herbert offered a seat in his vehicle to jupe who accepted it without ceremony the moment for departure had arrived and the little band set out the cart first turned the angle of the mouth of the mercy then having ascended the left bank for a mile crossed the bridge at the other side of which commenced the road to port balloon and there the explorers leaving this road on their left entered the cover of the immense woods which formed the region of the far west for the first two miles the widely scattered trees allowed the cart to pass with ease from time to time it became necessary to cut away a few creepers and bushes but no serious obstacle impeded the progress of the colonists the thick foliage of the trees threw a grateful shade on the ground deodars douglas firs casuarinas banksias gum trees dragon trees and other well-known species succeeded each other far as the eye could reach the feathered tribes of the island were all represented grouse jacamars pheasants lories as well as the chattering cockatoos parrots and parroquets agoutis kangaroos and capybaras fled swiftly at their approach and all this reminded the settlers of the first excursions they had made on their arrival at the island nevertheless observed cyrus harding i notice that these creatures both birds and quadrupeds are more timid than formerly these woods have therefore been recently traversed by the convicts and we shall certainly find some traces of them and in fact in several places they could distinguish traces more or less recent of the passage of a band of men here branches broken off the trees perhaps to mark out the way there the ashes of a fire and footprints in clayey spots but nothing which appeared to belong to a settled encampment the engineer had recommended his companions to refrain from hunting the reports of the firearms might give the alarm to the convicts who were perhaps roaming through the forest moreover the hunters would necessarily ramble some distance from the cart which it was dangerous to leave unguarded in the after part of the day when about six miles from granite house their progress became much more difficult in order to make their way through some thickets they were obliged to cut down trees before entering such places harding was careful to send in top and jupe who faithfully accomplished their commission and when the dog and orang returned without giving any warning there was evidently nothing to fear either from convicts or wild beasts two varieties of the animal kingdom whose ferocious instincts placed them on the same level on the evening of the first day the colonists encamped about nine miles from granite house on the border of a little stream falling into the mercy and of the existence of which they had till then been ignorant it evidently however belonged to the hydrographical system to which the soil owed its astonishing fertility the settlers made a hearty meal for their appetites were sharpened 
and measures were then taken that the night might be passed in safety. If the engineer had had only to deal with wild beasts, jaguars or others, he would have simply lighted fires all around his camp, which would have sufficed for its defense. But the convicts would be rather attracted than terrified by the flames, and it was, therefore, better to be surrounded by the profound darkness of night. The watch was, however, carefully organized. Two of the settlers were to watch together, and every two hours it was agreed that they should be relieved by their comrades. And so, notwithstanding his wish to the contrary, Herbert was exempted from guard. Pencroft and Gideon Spilett in one party, the engineer and Neb in another, mounted guard in turns over the camp. The night, however, was but a few hours. The darkness was due rather to the thickness of the foliage than to the disappearance of the sun. The silence was scarcely disturbed by the howling of jaguars and the chattering of the monkeys, the latter appearing to particularly irritate Master Jupe. The night passed without incident, and on the next day, the 15th of February, the journey through the forest, tedious rather than difficult, was continued. This day they could not accomplish more than six miles, for every moment they were obliged to cut a road with their hatchets. Like true settlers, the colonists spared the largest and most beautiful trees, which would besides have cost immense labor to fell, and the small ones only were sacrificed. But the result was that the road took a very winding direction, and lengthened itself by numerous detours. During the day Herbert discovered several new specimens not before met with in the island, such as the tree-fern, with its leaves spread out like the waters of a fountain, locust-trees, on the long pods of which the onagers browsed greedily, and which supplied a sweet pulp of excellent flavor. There, too, the colonists again found groups of magnificent quarries, their cylindrical trunks, crowned by a cone of verdure, rising to a height of two hundred feet. These were the tree kings of New Zealand, as celebrated as the cedars of Lebanon. As to the fauna, there was no addition to those species already known to the hunters. However, they saw, though unable to get near them, a couple of those large birds peculiar to Australia, a sort of cassowary called emu, five feet in height, and with brown plumage, which belonged to the tribe of waders. Top darted after them as fast as his four legs could carry him, but the emus distanced him with ease, so prodigious was their speed. As to the traces left by the convicts, a few more were discovered. Some footprints found near an apparently recently extinguished fire were attentively examined by the settlers. By measuring them one after the other, according to their length and breadth, the marks of five men's feet were easily distinguished. The five convicts had evidently camped on this spot, but, and this was the object of so minute an examination, a sixth footprint could not be discovered, which in that case would have been that of Ayrton. Ayrton was not with them, said Herbert. No, answered Pencroft and if he was not with them, it was because the wretches had already murdered him. But then these rascals have not a den to which they may be tracked like tigers. No, said the reporter, 
it is more probable that they wander at random, and it is their interest to rove about until the time when they will be masters of the island. "'The masters of the island!' exclaimed the sailor. "'The masters of the island!' he repeated, and his voice was choked, as if his throat was seized in an iron grasp. Then, in a calmer tone, "'Do you know, Captain Harding,' said he, "'what the ball is which I have rammed into my gun?' "'No, Pencroft.' "'It is the ball that went through Herbert's chest, and I promise you it won't miss its mark.' But this just retaliation would not bring Ayrton back to life, and from the examination of the footprints left in the ground, they must, alas, conclude that all hopes of ever seeing him again must be abandoned. That evening they encamped fourteen miles from Granite House, and Cyrus Harding calculated that they could not be more than five miles from Reptile Point. And indeed, the next day the extremity of the peninsula was reached, and the whole length of the forest had been traversed, but there was nothing to indicate the retreat in which the convicts had taken refuge, nor that, no less secret, which sheltered the mysterious unknown. End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne. Part 3, Chapter 12. The next day, the 18th of February, was devoted to the exploration of all that wooded region forming the shore from Reptile End to Falls River. The colonists were able to search this forest thoroughly, for as it was comprised between the two shores of the Serpentine Peninsula, it was only from three to four miles in breadth. The trees, both by their height and their thick foliage, bore witness to the vegetative power of the soil more astonishing here than in any other part of the island. One might have said that a corner from the virgin forests of America or Africa had been transported into this temperate zone. This led them to conclude that the superb vegetation found a heat in the soil, damp in its upper layer, but warmed in the interior by volcanic fires, which could not belong to a temperate climate. The most frequently occurring trees were kauris and eucalypti of gigantic dimensions. But the colonists' object was not simply to admire the magnificent vegetation. They knew already that in this respect Lincoln Island would have been worthy to take the first rank in the canary group, to which the first name given was that of the Happy Isles. Now, alas, their island no longer belonged to them entirely. Others had taken possession of it miscreants polluted its shores, and they must be destroyed to the last man. No traces were found on the western coast, although they were carefully sought for. No more footprints, no more broken branches, no more deserted camps. "'This does not surprise me,' said Cyrus Harding to his companions. The convicts first landed on the island in the neighborhood of Flotsam Point, and they immediately plunged into the far west forest, after crossing Tador Marsh. 
They then followed almost the same route that we took on leaving Granite House. This explains the traces we found in the wood. But, arriving on the shore, the convicts saw at once that they would discover no suitable retreat there, and it was then that, going northwards, again, they came upon the corral. "'Where they have perhaps returned,' said Pencroft. "'I do not think so,' answered the engineer, "'for they would naturally suppose that our researches would be in that direction. The corral is only a storehouse to them, and not a definitive encampment.' I am of Cyrus's opinion, said the reporter, and I think that it is among the spurs of Mount Franklin that the convicts will have made their lair. Then, Captain, straight to the corral, cried Pencroft. We must finish them off, and till now we have only lost time. No, my friend, replied the engineer, you forget that we have a reason for wishing to know if the forests of the far west do not contain some habitation. Our exploration has a double object, Pencroft. If, on the one hand, we have to chastise crime, we have, on the other, an act of gratitude to perform. That was well said, Captain, replied the sailor. But, all the same, it is my opinion that we shall not find the gentleman until he pleases. And truly, Pencroft only expressed the opinion of all it was probable that the stranger's retreat was not less mysterious than he himself. That evening the cart halted at the mouth of Falls River. The camp was organized as usual, and the customary precautions were taken for the night. Herbert, become again the healthy and vigorous lad he was before his illness, derived great benefit from this life in the open air, between the sea breezes and the vivifying air from the forests. His place was no longer in the cart, but at the head of the troop. The next day, the 19th of February, the colonists, leaving the shore, where, beyond the mouth, basalts of every shape were so picturesquely piled up, ascended the river by its left bank. The road had been already partly cleared in their former excursions, made from the corral to the west coast. The settlers were now about six miles from Mount Franklin. The engineer's plan was this, to minutely survey the valley forming the bed of the river, and to cautiously approach the neighborhood of the corral. If the corral was occupied, to seize it by force, if it was not, to entrench themselves there and make it the center of the operations which had for their object the exploration of Mount Franklin. This plan was unanimously approved by the colonists, for they were impatient to regain entire possession of their island. They made their way then along the narrow valley separating two of the largest spurs of Mount Franklin. The trees, crowded on the river's bank, became rare on the upper slopes of the mountain. The ground was hilly and rough, very suitable for ambushes, and over which they did not venture without extreme precaution. Top and Jupe skirmished on the flanks, springing right and left through the thick brushwood, and emulating each other in intelligence and activity. But nothing showed that the banks of the stream had been recently frequented. Nothing announced either the presence or the proximity of the convicts. Toward five in the evening the cart stopped nearly six hundred feet from the palisade. 
a semicircular screen of trees still hid it. It was necessary to reconnoitre the corral, in order to ascertain if it was occupied. To go there openly, in broad daylight, when the convicts were probably in ambush, would be to expose themselves, as poor Herbert had done, to the firearms of the ruffians. It was better, then, to wait until night came on. However, Gideon Spilett wished without further delay to reconnoitre the approaches to the corral, and Pencroft, who was quite out of patience, volunteered to accompany him. "'No, my friends,' said the engineer, "'wait till night. I will not allow one of you to expose himself in open day.' "'But, Captain,' answered the sailor, little disposed to obey, "'I beg of you, Pencroft,' said the engineer. "'Very well.' replied the sailor, who vented his anger in another way, by bestowing on the convicts the worst names in his maritime vocabulary. The colonists remained therefore near the cart, and carefully watched the neighbouring parts of the forest. Three hours passed thus. The wind had fallen, and absolute silence reigned under the great trees. The snapping of the smallest twig, a footstep on the dry leaves, the gliding of a body among the grass, would have been heard without difficulty. All was quiet. Besides, Top, lying on the grass, his head stretched out on his paws, gave no sign of uneasiness. At eight o'clock the day appeared far enough advanced for the reconnaissance to be made under favourable conditions. Gideon Spilett declared himself ready to set out, accompanied by Pencroft. Cyrus Harding consented. Top and Jup were to remain with the engineer, Herbert, and Neb, for a bark or a cry at a wrong moment would give the alarm. "'Do not be imprudent,' said Harding to the reporter and Pencroft. "'You have not to gain possession of the corral, but only to find out whether it is occupied or not.' "'All right,' answered Pencroft. And the two departed. Under the trees, thanks to the thickness of their foliage, the obscurity rendered any object invisible beyond a radius of from thirty to forty feet. The reporter and Pencroft, halting at any suspicious sound, advanced with great caution. They walked a little distance apart from each other, so as to offer a less mark for a shot, and, to tell the truth, they expected every moment to hear a report. Five minutes after leaving the cart, Gideon Spilett and Pencroft arrived at the edge of the wood before the clearing beyond which rose the palisade. They stopped. A few straggling beams still fell on the field clear of trees. Thirty feet distant was the gate of the corral, which appeared to be closed. The thirty feet, which it was necessary to cross from the wood to the palisade, constituted the dangerous zone, to borrow a ballistic term. In fact, one or more bullets fired from behind the palisade might knock over any one who ventured on to this zone. Gideon Spilett and the sailor were not men to draw back, but they knew that any imprudence on their part, of which they would be the fairest victims, would fall afterwards on their companions. If they themselves were killed, what would become of Harding, Neb, and Herbert? But Pencroft, excited at feeling himself so near the corral where he supposed the convicts had taken refuge, was about to press forward, when the reporter held him back with a grasp of iron. 
"'In a few minutes it will be quite dark,' whispered Spilett in the sailor's ear. "'Then will be the time to act.' Pencroft, convulsively clasping the butt-end of his gun, restrained his energies and waited, swearing to himself. Soon the last of the twilight faded away. Darkness, which seemed as if it issued from the dense forest, covered the clearing. Mount Franklin rose like an enormous screen before the western horizon, and night spread rapidly over all, as it does in regions of low latitudes. Now was the time. The reporter and Pencroft, since posting themselves on the edge of the wood, had not once lost sight of the palisade. The corral appeared to be absolutely deserted. The top of the palisade formed a line, a little darker than the surrounding shadow, and nothing disturbed its distinctness. Nevertheless, if the convicts were there, they must have posted one of their number to guard against any surprise. Spilett grasped his companion's hand, and both crept towards the corral, their guns ready to fire. They reached the gate without the darkness being illuminated by a single ray of light. Pencroft tried to push open the gate, which, as the reporter and he had supposed, was closed. However, the sailor was able to ascertain that the outer bars had not been put up. It might then be concluded that the convicts were there in the corral, and that very probably they had fastened the gate in such a way that it could not be forced open. Gideon Spilett and Pencroft listened. Not a sound could be heard inside the palisade. The musmans and the goats, sleeping no doubt in their huts, in no way disturbed the calm of night. The reporter and the sailor, hearing nothing, asked themselves whether they had not better scale the palisades and penetrate into the corral. This would have been contrary to Cyrus Harding's instructions. It is true that the enterprise might succeed, but it might also fail. Now, if the convicts were suspecting nothing, if they knew nothing of the expedition against them, if, lastly, there now existed a chance of surprising them, ought this chance to be lost by inconsiderately attempting to cross the palisades? This was not the reporter's opinion. He thought it better to wait until all the settlers were collected together before attempting to penetrate into the corral. One thing was certain, that it was possible to reach the palisade without being seen, and also that it did not appear to be guarded. This point settled, there was nothing to be done but to return to the cart where they would consult. Pencroft probably agreed with this decision, for he followed the reporter without making any objection when the latter turned back to the wood. In a few minutes the engineer was made acquainted with the state of affairs. "'Well,' said he, after a little thought, "'I now have reason to believe that the convicts are not in the corral.' "'We shall soon know,' said Pencroft, "'when we have scaled the palisade.' "'To the corral, my friends,' said Cyrus Harding. "'Shall we leave the cart in the wood?' asked Neb. "'No,' replied the engineer. "'It is our wagon of ammunition and provisions, "'and, if necessary, it would serve as an entrenchment.' "'Forward, then,' said Gideon Spilett. The cart emerged from the wood and began to roll noiselessly towards the palisade. The darkness was now profound. 
the silence as complete as when Pencroft and the reporter crept over the ground. The thick grass completely muffled their footsteps. The colonists held themselves ready to fire. Jup, at Pencroft's orders, kept behind. Neb led Top in a leash to prevent him from bounding forward. The clearing soon came in sight. It was deserted. Without hesitating, the little band moved towards the palisade. In a short space of time the dangerous zone was passed. Neb remained at the onagers' heads to hold them. The engineer, the reporter, Herbert, and Pencroft proceeded to the door in order to ascertain if it was barricaded inside. It was open. "'What do you say now?' asked the engineer, turning to the sailor and Spilett. Both were stupefied. "'I can swear,' said Pencroft, "'that this gate was shut just now.' The colonists now hesitated. Were the convicts in the corral when Pencroft and the reporter made their reconnaissance? It could not be doubted, as the gate then closed could only have been opened by them. Were they still there, or had one of their number just gone out? All these questions presented themselves simultaneously to the minds of the colonists, but how could they be answered? At that moment Herbert, who had advanced a few steps into the enclosure, drew back hurriedly and seized Harding's hand. "'What's the matter?' asked the engineer. "'A light!' "'In the house?' "'Yes.' All five advanced, and indeed, through the window fronting them, they saw glimmering a feeble light. Cyrus Harding made up his mind rapidly. "'It is our only chance,' said he to his companions, "'of finding the convicts collected in this house, suspecting nothing.' They are in our power. Forward. The colonists crossed through the enclosure, holding their guns ready in their hands. The cart had been left outside under the charge of Jupe and Top, who had been prudently tied to it. Cyrus Harding, Pencroft, and Gideon Spilett on one side, Herbert and Neb on the other, going along by the palisade, surveyed the absolutely dark and deserted corral. In a few moments they were near the closed door of the house. Harding signed to his companions not to stir, and approached the window, then feebly lighted by the inner light. He gazed into the apartment. On the table burned a lantern. Near the table was the bed formerly used by Ayrton. On the bed lay the body of a man. Suddenly Cyrus Harding drew back, and in a hoarse voice, Ayrton! He exclaimed. Immediately the door was forced rather than opened, and the colonists rushed into the room. Ayrton appeared to be asleep. His countenance showed that he had long and cruelly suffered. On his wrist and ankles could be seen great bruises. Harding bent over him. Ayrton! cried the engineer, seizing the arm of the man whom he had just found again under such unexpected circumstances. At this exclamation Ayrton opened his eyes, and gazing at Harding, then at the others, "'You!' he cried. "'You!' "'Ayrton! Ayrton!' repeated Harding. "'Where am I?' "'In the house in the corral.' "'Alone?' "'Yes.' "'But they will come back!' cried Ayrton. "'Defend yourselves! Defend yourselves!' And he fell back exhausted. 
"'Spill it!' exclaimed the engineer. "'We may be attacked at any moment. Bring the cart into the corral. Then barricade the door, and all come back here.' Pencroft, Neb, and the reporter hastened to execute the engineer's orders. There was not a moment to be lost. Perhaps even now the cart was in the hands of the convicts. In a moment the reporter and his two companions had crossed the corral and reached the gate of the palisade behind which Top was heard growling sullenly. The engineer, leaving Ayrton for an instant, came out ready to fire. Herbert was at his side. Both surveyed the crest of the spur overlooking the corral. If the convicts were lying in ambush there, they might knock the settlers over one after the other. At that moment the moon appeared in the east, above the black curtain of the forest, and a white sheet of light spread over the interior of the enclosure. The corral, with its clumps of trees, the little stream which watered it, its wide carpet of grass, was suddenly illuminated. From the side of the mountain the house and a part of the palisade stood out white in the moonlight. On the opposite side, towards the door, the enclosure remained dark. A black mass soon appeared. This was the cart entering the circle of light, and Cyrus Harding could hear the noise made by the door as his companion shut it and fastened the interior bars. But at that moment Top, breaking loose, began to bark furiously and rushed to the back of the corral, to the right of the house. "'Be ready to fire, my friends!' cried Harding. The colonists raised their pieces and waited the moment to fire. Top still barked, and Jupe, running towards the dog, uttered shrill cries. The colonists followed him, and reached the borders of the little stream, shaded by large trees. And there, in the bright moonlight, what did they see? Five corpses stretched on the bank. They were those of the convicts who, four months previously, had landed on Lincoln Island. End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne Part Three, Chapter Thirteen How had it happened? Who had killed the convicts? Was it Ayrton? No, for a moment before he was dreading their return. But Ayrton was now in a profound stupor, from which it was no longer possible to rouse him. After uttering those few words he had again become unconscious, and had fallen back motionless on the bed. The colonists, a prey to a thousand confused thoughts, under the influence of violent excitement, waited all night without leaving Ayrton's house, or returning to the spot where lay the bodies of the convicts. It was very probable that Ayrton would not be able to throw any light on the circumstances under which the bodies had been found, since he himself was not aware that he was in the corral. But at any rate he would be in a position to give an account of what had taken place before this terrible execution. The next day Ayrton awoke from his torpor, and his companions cordially manifested all the joy they felt on seeing him again, almost safe and sound, 
after a hundred and four days' separation. Ayrton then in a few words recounted what had happened, or at least as much as he knew. The day after his arrival at the corral, on the 10th of last November, at nightfall, he was surprised by the convicts, who had scaled the palisade. They bound and gagged him, then he was led to a dark cavern at the foot of Mount Franklin, where the convicts had taken refuge. His death had been decided upon, and the next day the convicts were about to kill him, when one of them recognized him and called him by the name which he bore in Australia. The wretches had no scruples as to murdering Ayrton, they spared Ben Joyce. But from that moment Ayrton was exposed to the importunities of his former accomplices. They wished him to join them again, and relied upon his aid to enable them to gain possession of Granite House, to penetrate into that hitherto inaccessible dwelling, and to become masters of the island after murdering the colonists. Ayrton remained firm. The once convict, now repentant and pardoned, would rather die than betray his companions. Ayrton, bound, gagged, and closely watched, lived in this cave for four months. Nevertheless the convicts had discovered the corral a short time after their arrival in the island, and since then they had subsisted on Ayrton's stores, but did not live at the corral. On the 11th of November two of the villains, surprised by the colonists' arrival, fired at Herbert, and one of them returned, boasting of having killed one of the inhabitants of the island, but he returned alone. His companion, as is known, fell by Cyrus Harding's dagger. Ayrton's anxiety and despair may be imagined when he learned the news of Herbert's death. The settlers were now only four, and, as it seemed, at the mercy of the convicts. After this event, and during all the time that the colonists, detained by Herbert's illness, remained in the corral, the pirates did not leave their cavern, and even after they had pillaged the plateau of Prospect Heights, they did not think it prudent to abandon it. The ill-treatment inflicted on Ayrton was now redoubled. His hands and feet still bore the bloody marks of the cords which bound him day and night. Every moment he expected to be put to death, nor did it appear possible that he could escape. Matters remained thus until the third week of February. The convicts, still watching for a favorable opportunity, rarely quitted their retreat, and only made a few hunting excursions, either to the interior of the island or the south coast. Ayrton had no further news of his friends, and relinquished all hope of ever seeing them again. At last, the unfortunate man, weakened by ill-treatment, fell into a prostration so profound that sight and hearing failed him. From that moment, that is to say, since the last two days, he could give no information whatever of what had occurred. But, Captain Harding, he added, since I was imprisoned in that cavern, how is it that I find myself in the corral? How is it that the convicts are lying yonder dead in the middle of the enclosure? answered the engineer. Dead! cried Ayrton, half rising from his bed, notwithstanding his weakness. His companions supported him. He wished to get up, and with their assistance he did so. They then proceeded together towards the little stream. It was now broad daylight. 
There, on the bank, in the position in which they had been stricken by death in its most instantaneous form, lay the corpses of the five convicts. Ayrton was astounded. Harding and his companions looked at him without uttering a word. On a sign from the engineer, Neb and Pencroft examined the bodies, already stiffened by the cold. They bore no apparent trace of any wound. Only, after carefully examining them, Pencroft found on the forehead of one, on the chest of another, on the back of this one, on the shoulder of that, a little red spot, a sort of scarcely visible bruise, the cause of which it was impossible to conjecture. "'It is there that they have been struck,' said Cyrus Harding. "'But with what weapon?' cried the reporter. "'A weapon lightning-like in its effects, and of which we have not the secret.' "'And who has struck the blow?' asked Pencroft. "'The avenging power of the island,' replied Harding. "'He who brought you here, Ayrton, whose influence has once more manifested itself, who does for us all that which we cannot do for ourselves, and who, his will accomplished, conceals himself from us.' "'Let us make search for him, then!' exclaimed Pencroft. "'Yes, we will search for him.' answered Harding, but we shall not discover this powerful being who performs such wonders until he pleases to call us to him. This invisible protection, which rendered their own action unavailing, both irritated and piqued the engineer. The relative inferiority which it proved was of a nature to wound a haughty spirit. A generosity evinced in such a manner as to elude all tokens of gratitude, implied a sort of disdain on those on whom the obligation was conferred, which in Cyrus Harding's eyes marred, in some degree, the worth of the benefit. "'Let us search,' he resumed, "'and God grant that we may some day be permitted to prove to this haughty protector that he has not to deal with ungrateful people. What would I not give could we repay him?' by rendering him in our turn, although at the price of our lives, some signal service. From this day the thoughts of the inhabitants of Lincoln Island were solely occupied with the intended search. Everything incited them to discover the answer to this enigma, an answer which would only be the name of a man endowed with a truly inexplicable and in some degree superhuman power. In a few minutes the settlers re-entered the house, where their influence soon restored to Ayrton his moral and physical energy. Neb and Pencroft carried the corpses of the convicts into the forest, some distance from the corral, and buried them deep in the ground. Ayrton was then made acquainted with the facts which had occurred during his seclusion. He learned Herbert's adventures, and through what various trials the colonists had passed. As to the settlers, they had despaired of ever seeing Ayrton again, and had been convinced that the convicts had ruthlessly murdered him. And now, said Cyrus Harding, as he ended his recital, a duty remains for us to perform. Half of our task is accomplished, but although the convicts are no longer to be feared, it is not owing to ourselves that we are once more masters of the island. Well, answered Gideon Spilett, let us search all this labyrinth of the spurs of Mount Franklin. 
we will not leave a hollow not a hole unexplored ah if ever a reporter found himself face to face with a mystery it is i who now speak to you my friends and we will not return to granite house until we have found our benefactor said herbert yes said the engineer we will do all that is humanly possible to do but i repeat we shall not find him until he himself permits us shall we stay at the corral asked pencroft we shall stay here answered harding provisions are abundant and we are here in the very centre of the circle we have to explore besides if necessary the cart will take us rapidly to granite house good answered the sailor only i have a remark to make what is it here is the fine season getting on and we must not forget that we have a voyage to make a voyage asked gideon spilett yes to tabor island answered pencroft it is necessary to carry a notice there to point out the position of our island and say that ayrton is here in case the scotch yacht should come to take him off who knows if it is not already too late but pencroft asked ayrton how do you intend to make this voyage in the bonaventure the bonaventure exclaimed ayrton she no longer exists my bonaventure exists no longer shouted pencroft bounding from his seat no answered ayrton the convicts discovered her in her little harbour only eight days ago they put to sea in her and and said pencroft his heart beating and not having bob harvey to steer her they ran on the rocks and the vessel went to pieces oh the villains the cutthroats the infamous scoundrels exclaimed pencroft pencroft said herbert taking the sailor's hand we will build another bonaventure a larger one we have all the ironwork all the rigging of the brig at our disposal but do you know returned pencroft that it will take at least five or six months to build a vessel of from thirty to forty tons we can take our time said the reporter and we must give up the voyage to tabor island for this year oh my bonaventure my poor bonaventure cried pencroft almost broken-hearted at the destruction of the vessel of which he was so proud the loss of the bonaventure was certainly a thing to be lamented by the colonists and it was agreed that this loss should be repaired as soon as possible this settled they now occupied themselves with bringing their researches to bear on the most secret parts of the island the exploration was commenced at daybreak on the nineteenth of february and lasted an entire week the base of the mountain with its spurs and their numberless ramifications formed a labyrinth of valleys and elevations it was evident that there in the depths of these narrow gorges perhaps even in the interior of mount franklin itself was the proper place to pursue their researches no part of the island could have been more suitable to conceal a dwelling whose occupant wished to remain unknown but so irregular was the formation of the valleys that cyrus harding was obliged to conduct the exploration in a strictly methodical manner the colonists first visited the valley opening to the south of the volcano and which first received the waters of falls river there ayrton showed them the cavern 
where the convicts had taken refuge, and in which he had been imprisoned until his removal to the corral. This cavern was just as Ayrton had left it. They found there a considerable quantity of ammunition and provisions, conveyed thither by the convicts in order to form a reserve. The whole of the valley bordering on the cave, shaded by fir and other trees, was thoroughly explored, and on turning the point of the southwestern spur, the colonists entered a narrower gorge similar to the picturesque columns of basalt on the coast. Here the trees were fewer. Stones took the place of grass. Goats and musmons gambled among the rocks. Here began the barren part of the island. It could already be seen that, of the numerous valleys branching off at the base of Mount Franklin, three only were wooded and rich in pasturage like that of the corral, which bordered on the west on the Falls River Valley, and on the east on the Red Creek Valley. These two streams, which lower down became rivers by the absorption of several tributaries, were formed by all the springs of the mountain, and thus caused the fertility of its southern part. As to the Mercy, it was more directly fed from ample springs concealed under the cover of Jacamar Wood, and it was by springs of this nature, spreading in a thousand streamlets, that the soil of the Serpentine Peninsula was watered. Now of these three well-watered valleys, either might have served as a retreat to some solitary who would have found there everything necessary for life. But the settlers had already explored them, and in no part had they discovered the presence of man. Was it then in the depths of those barren gorges, in the midst of the piles of rock, in the rugged northern ravines, among the streams of lava, that this dwelling and its occupant would be found? The northern part of Mount Franklin was at its base composed solely of two valleys, wide, not very deep, without any appearance of vegetation, strewn with masses of rock, paved with lava, and varied with great blocks of mineral. This region required a long and careful exploration. It contained a thousand cavities, comfortless no doubt, but perfectly concealed and difficult of access. The colonists even visited dark tunnels, dating from the volcanic period, still black with the passage of the fire, and penetrated into the depths of the mountain. They traversed these sombre galleries, waving lighted torches, they examined the smallest excavations, they sounded the shallowest depths, but all was dark and silent. It did not appear that the foot of man had ever before trodden these ancient passages, or that his arm had ever displaced one of these blocks, which remained as the volcano had cast them up above the waters at the time of the submersion of the island. However, although these passages appeared to be absolutely deserted, and the obscurity was complete, Cyrus Harding was obliged to confess that absolute silence did not reign there. On arriving at the end of one of these gloomy caverns, extending several hundred feet into the interior of the mountain, he was surprised to hear a deep rumbling noise, increased in intensity by the sonorousness of the rocks. Gideon Spilett, who accompanied him, also heard these distant mutterings, which indicated a revivification of the subterranean fires. 
several times both listened, and they agreed that some chemical process was taking place in the bowels of the earth. "'Then the volcano is not totally extinct?' said the reporter. "'It is possible that since our exploration of the crater,' replied Cyrus Harding, "'some change has occurred. Any volcano, although considered extinct, may evidently again burst forth.' "'But if an eruption of Mount Franklin occurred,' asked Spilett, "'would there not be some danger to Lincoln Island?' "'I do not think so,' answered the engineer. "'The crater, that is to say the safety valve, exists, "'and the overflow of smoke and lava would escape, "'as it did formerly by this customary outlet. "'Unless the lava opened a new way for itself "'towards the fertile parts of the island,' "'And why, my dear Spilett,' answered Cyrus Harding, "'should it not follow the road naturally traced out for it?' "'Well, volcanoes are capricious,' returned the reporter. "'Notice,' answered the engineer, "'that the inclination of Mount Franklin "'favors the flow of water towards the valleys "'which we are exploring just now. "'To turn aside this flow, "'an earthquake would be necessary "'to change the mountain's centre of gravity.' "'But an earthquake is always to be feared at these times,' observed Gideon Spilett. "'Always,' replied the engineer, "'especially when the subterranean forces begin to awake, "'as they risk meeting with some obstruction after a long rest. "'Thus, my dear Spilett, an eruption would be a serious thing for us, "'and it would be better that the volcano should not have the slightest desire to wake up. "'But we could not prevent it, could we?' At any rate, even if it should occur, I do not think Prospect Heights would be seriously threatened. Between them and the mountain the ground is considerably depressed, and if the lava should ever take a course towards the lake, it would be cast on the downs and the neighboring parts of Shark Gulf. We have not yet seen any smoke at the top of the mountain to indicate an approaching eruption, said Gideon Spilett. No answered Harding. Not a vapour escapes from the crater, for it was only yesterday that I attentively surveyed the summit. But it is probable that at the lower part of the chimney time may have accumulated rocks, cinders, hardened lava, and that this valve of which I spoke may at any time become overcharged. But at the first serious effort every obstacle will disappear, and you may be certain, my dear Spilett, that neither the island, which is the boiler, nor the volcano, which is the chimney, will burst under the pressure of gas. Nevertheless, I repeat, it would be better that there should not be an eruption. And yet we are not mistaken, remarked the reporter. Mutterings can be distinctly heard in the very bowels of the volcano. You are right, said the engineer, again listening attentively. There can be no doubt of it. A commotion is going on there, of which we can neither estimate the importance nor the ultimate result. Cyrus Harding and Spilett, on coming out, rejoined their companions, to whom they made known the state of affairs. "'Very well!' cried Pencroft. "'The volcano wants to play his pranks. Let him try, if he likes. We will find his master.' "'Who?' asked Neb. "'Our good genius, Neb, our good genius, who will shut his mouth for him, if he so much as pretends to open it.' 
As may be seen, the sailor's confidence in the tutelary deity of his island was absolute, and certainly the occult power, manifested until now in so many inexplicable ways, appeared to be unlimited, but also it knew how to escape the colonists' most minute researches, for in spite of all their efforts, in spite of the more than zeal, the obstinacy, with which they carried on their exploration, the retreat of the mysterious being could not be discovered. From the 19th to the 25th of February, the circle of investigation was extended to all the northern region of Lincoln Island, whose most secret nooks were explored. The colonists even went the length of tapping every rock. The search was extended to the extreme verge of the mountain. It was explored thus to the very summit of the truncated cone terminating the first row of rocks, then to the upper ridge of the enormous hat, at the bottom of which opened the crater. They did more. They visited the gulf, now extinct, but in whose depths the rumbling could be distinctly heard. However, no sign of smoke or vapor, no heating of the rock, indicated an approaching eruption. But neither there nor in any other part of Mount Franklin did the colonists find any traces of him of whom they were in search. Their investigations were then directed to the downs. They carefully examined the high lava cliffs of Shark Gulf from the base to the crest, although it was extremely difficult to reach even the level of the gulf. No one. Nothing. Indeed, in these three words was summed up so much fatigue uselessly expended, so much energy producing no results, that somewhat of anger mingled with the discomfiture of Cyrus Harding and his companions. It was now time to think of returning, for these researches could not be prolonged indefinitely. The colonists were certainly right in believing that the mysterious being did not reside on the surface of the island, and the wildest fancies haunted their excited imaginations. Pencroft and Neb, particularly, were not contented with the mystery, but allowed their imaginations to wander into the domain of the supernatural. On the 25th of February, the colonists re-entered Granite House, and by means of the double cord, carried by an arrow to the threshold of the door, they re-established communication between their habitation and the ground. A month later they commemorated, on the 25th of March, the third anniversary of their arrival on Lincoln Island. End of chapter. Nice buns. Soft, fluffy, and ultra-low net carbs. Discover Hero Bread, the delicious, ultra-low net carb bread with incredible taste and texture. Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving. Plus, high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from Hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10. H-E-R-O dot C-O.